As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains accounts of child sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I've got a mate of mine, Professor Ian Coyle, he does trauma reports, and his stats on me were a million to one. He said, you know, looking back on where you come, you come from now, Drew, say up against that low socioeconomic area, you've done 23 years, you're sexually abused, you're a $1,500 a day heroin addict. And he said, you're a million to one shot. Russell Manser is an extraordinary man. He's been in and out of prison since he was literally a child. And when he wasn't inside, he was robbing banks to support a raging heroin habit. 
as we know, lifestyles like that don't come out of nowhere. And when Russell Manser decided to face the truth of what had happened to him, it changed his life. And since then, he's changed many other people's lives too. You may have noticed we've shared an episode of Russell's own podcast with you this week too. It's called The Stick Up, and we're very jealous because his guest is Mick Gatto, who we've tried to get on this show for many years without any luck, but it's a great interview and it's a great podcast. This is a very upsetting story involving serious sexual assault. We've talked around these issues before with other guests, but Russell is uncompromisingly honest in the way he tells his own story. So please take this as another content warning. I grew up in Mount Druitt. It's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from there. My parents are English immigrants from Liverpool, England, and came out in 65 in the Queen Mary with four kids that were born in Liverpool, England. Me and my brother were born in Liverpool, Australia. And, um, <laughs> you know, and we grew up in a housing commission house, a fibro house with asbestos roof that was just like an oven in the summer. My dad worked uh, in, in a factory. My mum worked in a plastic factory of a night shift. So, you know, I, I was self-sufficient. I was cooking for myself at five years old. You know, my mates would come over and I'd be standing on a chair cooking eggs and toast and, you know, they thought I was a great little chef and, you know, I'd be cooking for half the street. So I was self-sufficient for a young age. And, and man, my parents were really good people who had just done their best. I'm doing a lot of work on this sort of stuff. I don't know if it was abandonment issues or anything like that, but I had to grow up really quick. I love my mum. She was such a, a beautiful, you know, but the nurturing side of things wasn't that great because of, you know, the, I never used to, I used to see my mum on a weekend. That was it. But I was one of these kids that I would never go to school unless I knew my mum was safe. She'd come home from work and I'd give her a kiss and she'd get home from work at eight, eight o'clock and then I'd run to school from there, you know. That's the type of kid I was. I was very, um, I don't know, really responsive to affection and stuff like that. There was a lot of fear in that when I, when I think back to it, and I don't think fear is a great way for kids to grow up. I was always one of those kids, always escaping my environment, dreaming of different other things, and, you know, and um, I remember as a kid I, was, I had an awareness of I'd see these people at the bus stops and at 6 o'clock in the morning and just looking miserable. But then I'd see the blokes coming home from jail and boys' homes and that being treated like war heroes, and they were celebrated. The fathers had pushed the daughter out, there, Cheryl, that's the type of bloke you want to marry. You'll look after you. Know, at least you'll have a good life with him. And that's how it was back then. And um, my idols were like, you know, the crims. They were driving Mercedes and Jags and the latest cars and wearing the best, And you know, and my family paid, took them four years to pay off a Datsun 180B. That looked romantic to me, these guys driving, you know, coming home from prison, looking fit and, you know, getting around with the best-looking girls. And But it was seasonal, you know. You'd see them one season, they were gone the next and gone for years at a time. And then you'd see the wife at the bus stop with the kids heading to Parramatta Jail or Long Bay or anything like that for years on end. By the time I was about 10 years old, my brother was a spray-painted panel beater. I was doing cars up and that at home and I wanted to do that. So seeing all these kids coming around and stolen cars and that looked rock star to me by the time i was 12 i was sort of joyriding in cars and by the time i was 14 i was starting to drive them and that's when my trouble began i, I got in a, a police chase and, and crashed the car back then you, there was no diversion programs like you know what i mean probation or anything like that it was you went before the courts six months and off you go and i went into boys home and then i went out to Derek. Derek was like it was just a crazy crazy place it was like pedophile's paradise. Here I was, I was this underdeveloped 
maybe 40 kilo. You know, as soon as I got that old, I'm from Mount Druitt and they'll call me a little surfy because I had a big mop of blonde hair and been out in the sun and they'll call me a surfy. And I was like, who are they calling a surfy? I'm not a fucking surfy. I got put into, like, because you've got these four houses there and there's, like, big dormitories and that sort of stuff. All of Mount Druitt kids were there. So it was like going back and giving them updates on where how their family, like, you know, it was like news back on the front. It was like going to the front line in war and everyone wants to know how their brother's in this. Did you see my brother or you see my my mum or whatever? One of the kids was sort of said, man, some bad things happened in this place and um, I didn't sort of take too much on it. And then over night time you're in these dormitories and then there's like an office and the officers can see all the kids in the beds and... I was sort of aware that something wasn't right and you've seen these officers walking out and grabbing kids and then walking them into the toilet blocks. Over a period of time, I started to see people that didn't work there either. I, you know, I later think there was a pedophile ring ha- happening out of there amongst the officers. And um, So about the second or third night, someone grabs me and they say, come in here, go into the, uh, they call it an ablutions box, which is a shower and toilet and that sort of thing. I was sexually abused that night by two officers. I can remember one of them just had the most stinkiest breath. Like he just, like to basically get me to do what he wanted him to do, he'd breathe on me and it just, it was like um, sewer breath and it just rattled me. From there on in, it was just a, a really, going back to my bed after it and just getting put in, it was just this, like, this void that opened up in me. It was a really dark place. Something that created in me was really darkness in my stomach and and I remember there was these old matrons and these matrons used to come in you know like old grandmothers you know you think you can tell them anything and they're soft and they come in to make sure you had your clothes and, and stuff like that you had like a uniform that you had to wear and I said you know you know, I've got, you know this this officer's done bad things to me and she said no, don't tell lies about him all you little fellas you little bastards are trying to say these officers are done she goes you're a little pack of liars and I went oh wasn't just expecting it because she was like this old, warm-looking, and she just turned into this ogre. So, you know, and I, over a period of time, that happened a few times to me, and then uh, one time I ran away. Where the boys' home was, it was about 10K, so I ran home, and my dad was really sick with emphysema, and I ran home, and I just, with the every intentions of telling them what was going on, and I, and I went in there, and I just, well, I can't. I've got five brothers and a sister, and that's that masculinity thing. And it's like back then, that when them kids thought, you know, you think it was gay, you know what I mean? And I'm not homophobic or anything. Like, you can't differentiate as a young boy when a, a male perpetrator does something you and not being gay. There's a big difference, I know, you know, but back then you just think I've just performed a gay act. And just I looked at my dad and I just couldn't do it. The boys' home had been to my family house and said, if he hands himself in, we won't get the police involved. So my mum and dad said, we'll drive you back out there. You know, I reluctantly went back out there. And then they had this thing that was called the boob, and it's like um, an isolation cell. Out at Windsor, in the middle of winter, it gets like minus two, and there's nothing in there's like a, a, like a can to go to the toilet in and no blankets or anything, like just a cold floor. Strip you naked and put you in there so you, all night you're jogging on the spot. Two of them come in and sexually abuse me again. How old were you? 14, 10 and 15. I got out of there. I never smoked pot or anything. I was never a drug user. Like a lot of my mates were smoking pot and it never appealed to me because the, the smoking aspect, I was really anti-against cigarettes. And, and I remember 
trying pot for the first time and thinking that that's sort of numb me, you know. Like I remember these boys were smoking pot in the underpass. It wasn't long after I got out. Once again, I get out like a celebrated boy here and everyone's patting me on the back. Good on you, mate. And then um, I'm in this, uh, walking in this underpass, just going for a walk and um, this bloke said, yeah, try this. And in the past, that wouldn't have appealed to me, but anything, I would have cut my toe off if that void would have went, you know what I mean? If someone said, cut that toe off and that thing would go away. And he said to me, this will make you feel better. And I was like, he knew what I was going through. And um, so I smoked this pipe and that felt all right. And, I, and, I, and then I, I'd become a regular pipe user. And one of the things I learned at Derry Boys Home was how to steal Porsches. You know, I was like a college. <laughs> yeah. It was like a college of knowledge. And I learned how to steal it. I could steal a Porsche in 45 seconds. So, you know, over a period of time, I tried to straighten my life out. I tried working as an apprentice chef and um, I just wasn't. And this void thing was just ugly and ugly. And my sleep, and even to today, my partner will tell you that, I'm just, I'm a horrible sleeper because of the time the abuse was late at night and I have nightmares to this day. But it just wasn't happening. Everything I was doing wasn't working. You know, I'm trying to work. I worked in racehorse stables. I tried everything I could do as that form of escapism, and um, it just didn't work. One day, one of the boys I was in the boys' home with got out of the boys' home and said, let's go and steal a Porsche, and uh, I was there with bells on. So we went over to this affluent area in uh, Sydney called Whale Beach, and we stole a, a 930 twin-turbo Porsche, and everything's like fucking fighter jets. They're just unbelievably quick. And um, at the time, there was a kid called Scotty Simpson. They called him the Turbo Kid, and he was getting all this publicity because he was stealing Porsches and going out in front of Balmain Police Station and revving the car up and waiting until the police come out and taking off and become this urban hero, you know. I was in the front page of the paper. And this was at the time that I stole the Porsche and stole this Porsche. I was going up this road where I'd been up a few times before. It was French's Forest Road, and it was one of the darkest roads in Sydney. It was really light, and... My mate opened the sunroof and there's a police helicopter on top of us, you know, and it was the first time they brought the police helicopter in to get this turbo kid. It was the first time they'd ever used it and catching someone that was on ours. And I'm going, fucking wow, you know. So we're trying to shake him and we couldn't shake him. We went down this street and ended up running into Sydney Harbour and trying to swim away and we got caught by the water police. Yeah. And um, so I ended up at Manly Police Station. Anyway, long story short, I ended up before Bajura Children's Court the next day. And this lawyer, like, that's my distrust. The lawyer come from this bloke here. It just was massive. And he didn't warn us what was going to go down. He said, just plead guilty. You'll get three months. You'll have to go to the boy's home. And I was thinking, okay. And then um, the judge sentenced us and he said, "I." his words were, how dare you come from Mount Druitt and steal a Porsche from an affluent area? You know, it was like a class crime. How dare you have the audacity to do that? And he said, I'm going to sentence you to 12 months and I stipulate it gets served in an adult prison. Oh. I thought it was joking. I just thought, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, dickhead. And then, yeah, we got handcuffed and we jumped in a bull wagon driving out along Bay. And I said to my mate, this ain't – because the boys' home for us to go, I was 16 by that stage, the boys' home would have been Mount Penang up at Gosford. I said, this is a funny way to go to Gosford. And then we got to Long Bay, the gates opened, and then – um we got in and, you know, they wanted the strip searches and I said, strip searches, you know. It's funny because, they, you know, I look at them people today and I just think, how do you, how, they were thinking it's funny. And they were sort of saying, spread your ass cheeks, jump down and cough and everything like that. They, they seem to be getting some sick joy out of it. And then um, give me these oversized green clothes and said, come up here. And I, and I had a mattress and um, I went to a cell and there was two cards and it says someone's name in the sentence. They're doing them. And um, 
so there was two cards, put me there and they said, open the door and there's two blokes in bunks. One was about 45 and one was about 35. And then they slammed the door and before they said, they said, have fun, boys. I was laying on the floor because my, my mattress was on the floor and I could see old mate masturbating underneath. He had his, like, his knee up and I could see him jerking off. And then he just said, get up here. And he said, do something with this. And then old mate leaned down from the top and he goes, mate, you do it the easy way or the hard way. So once again, sexually abused. And, um, and I was there with another bloke and he came out in the morning. I seen he, he had tears in his eyes and that. And, and then when I went down, like you go to this mustard area, and it was this bloke and he just looked like a creep. He had these dark Coca-Cola bottle glasses. He had like hair on his back was sticking out of his T-shirt. His name was Jeff Hardy. He was a notorious necrophiliac, and he was just zooming in on me. And I was oh, I got the worst feeling from this guy ever. And uh, he said, "Where are you?" And I told him where, where I was. He said, "No, yeah, you'll have to come and stay." And I was just thinking, "Fuck, what is it?" It was like it was hell. Later that day, he said, "Come around." Like he had this song go around the back there, and. He said, I'll give you something to make you feel better. And I said, oh, I don't want it. And he said, mate. And he just growled at me. He said, just get around here and get it and give me a shot of heroin for the first time I'd ever had heroin. It was like the syringe was cut down or had a like a piece of thong for the plunger and an old nail to, to pull it back. It was like disgusting. And he gave me that. And then I, I, my first reaction was heroin. Was I got sick and I wanted to vomit. And that's when he, as I was vomiting into the toilet, that's where he sexually abused me. And then... Um, in jail, how you see senior screws has got these things, they're like a pip. You see the coppers have got them and they've got like pips on their shoulders and it says that, you know. So you, you've got a fair idea that they're senior management. And I seen one guy, once again, he had that old grandfather look about him and I said, man, this ain't good. I said, we're kids and I don't think we're meant to be here. And and he goes, oh, and he said, how are you fine? And I said, mate, mate, these pedo- no, you've been sexually abused. And then later I looked over and here he was talking to the necrophiliac, telling him what I must have said. So it made my life hell there. And then about six weeks later, I'll get what's called a Section 94, which which means I was getting transferred from Long Bay back to the Mount Penang Boys' Home. So, so those six weeks, you're 16. Yeah. Did that continue on? Yeah, it did. It was an ongoing process. You were just consistently raped. Yeah, it was an ongoing process there. In Long Bay with yeah. the full knowledge of But stuff. you know what? But what it was was... One wing at the Central Industrial Prison at Long Bay housed the worst sex offenders in Australia at the time, yeah. right? It's not like today, like they've got the protection wings and that, and some blokes just can't fight or scare or whatever, they go in there. But this was just like it was like the worst sex offenders, corrupt cops, police informers, corrupt screws or whatever, and that's what it was. It was a wing of about 120 people, the worst degenerates in the state at the time. In their best way of thinking, they thought housing me would be the safest place for me to be. And I, like, how do you come to that conclusion? If child safety were aware of a kid going on a housing block, they would, like, you know, they've got these housing blocks where they house sex offenders or something like that. They wouldn't allow it. They wouldn't allow it, but they allowed that. That lawyer should have said, mate, you can't do it. That was I was just thinking about and the number of adults involved, actually. I was thinking about the prosecution lawyer, the defence lawyer, the judge, the staff at the prison. You know, I've backtracked since then and, and looked at it. Was to- that process was totally illegal, what they've done to yeah. me. Totally, yeah, totally illegal. And if you think sexually abusing children is going to be a deterrent for, for offending behaviour, you are so wrong. If you think that, you know, we'll let the pedophiles do our justice for us, you know, you've got a pretty sick mind. 
So you ended up, they, they transported you to Mount Penang. Mount Penang. I'd done about eight months up there. I was sort of given privileged treatment up there because I was like, you know, they, they knew what had happened to me and they didn't really want that getting out. There was abuse going on up there, but I got kept out of it. But, was that, but be honest, at that stage, they were, if they would have tried on me, they were, I'd had enough and I was willing to kill someone. I got to that stage and I, I developed something I'd never had. I had developed a propensity for violence. Oh, of course. As a defence mechanism. Yeah. Well, as a trauma coping response. But um, I won't, and I still am today, I'm the person that really looks after themselves physically and I've always trained and, and part of that, I think, subconsciously is always just never allowing that to be vulnerable and being willing to fight. And, and I sort of made that clear when I got to Mount Penang. Yeah, I got out and I just... Man, my, by this stage, my mum had moved from Mount Druitt to Liverpool, which is close to Cabramatta. That's when the, the heroin epidemic was kicking off at Cabramatta. So, you know, I was aware of it. I knew heroin filled the void, made me feel good. And, I, and I, you know, and off I'd go to Cabramatta, get on, and just this routine of drug use and, and offending behaviour. And, and, you know, the next time I ended up in a mainstream prison, I was safe as houses. I was like, they, people look down on people like that, you know what I mean? So, yeah, so I went on this 23-year cycle of drug use and like people say what's heroin withdrawal like right i'll tell you what it's like think of your worst flu that you've ever had and times it by 10 that'd be the closest way you could describe heroin withdrawal so you wake up hanging out i used to have loaded syringes in my milk cartons like already i didn't want to even go through the process of mixing like the mixing up you get it comes in a powder form, you put it in a spoon or, or a Coke can or something, you hit it with water and then you mix it up and then you suck it up with syringe and then you inject it. I used to have them already pre-made because I didn't want to even have to, to go through the process of uh, mixing it up. And all when, you wake used, up, when you wake yeah, up in the morning, you wanted yeah. to know it was ready. Because, look, what you're hiding from and what you're using for is waiting for you when you open your eyes. All of that horrible stuff, that void is there sitting there and, and it's amplified. It's really amplified and it's real and it's got a voice and it's loud and so you wake up to that and that's part of the, the addiction itself. You know, I mean, that, the, the addiction knows to use that to keep you going and it's like, oh, and it's like it's on a loudspeaker. All that that shame and that guilt and that embarrassment that's there waiting for you. So you think you want to get that syringe in your arm as quick as you can to avoid that because it's loud. It's so loud. We received a lot of messages a little while back after we spoke to Vanessa Valentine, and we thought this one was a good message to share during Russell's episode. The part one of Vanessa Valentine's podcast, I could have been listening to my own story in so many ways. The similarities are freakishly accurate, especially about um, trauma and heroin it's it's amazing how many people think that heroin addicts are just pieces of shit that have like have grown up in the worst possible ways when there's so many of us that are just little kids that have suffered from trauma and abuse and are looking for that numbness and it's a hard hard place to come out of thank you so much for that we love receiving your voice messages and there's also a link on our facebook page
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I was up to no good. I was on a plane going to Perth, and I was reading a book called Sleepers, which is the Kevin Bacon movie about kids that were abused in a home, and they square up on their abusers. And... um. I was reading it, and I was there was a bloke sitting behind me. And I, you know when you someone you can feel someone staring at you, and he said that book. He goes, "Why are you reading?" It? And I just blurted it out, and I said, "It's the story of my life." I told him I'd spent a whole heap of time in boys' homes and jails and everything like that, and he told me about the Royal Commission. He was part of the Royal Commission and um, oh in, institution responses to child sexual abuse, so he was part of that, and he was telling me it was kicking off. That was in 2013. I think it might have even kicked off by then, or it was kicking off, and I thought nothing of it. I went on a bank robbing spree and I, was, I robbed a heap of Suncorp Metways from North Sydney to the Gold Coast and I ended up getting caught coming out of one on the Gold Coast. And um, I was at Southport Watch House and I was like a, I was a Tasmanian tiger because they got these blinds on the cells, uh, windows, cell windows, and it was like all these people are peeping through and it's like they've seen a Tasmanian tiger. And first, none of them had ever seen a bank robber before because that was – Weren't many rob- bank robbers around by then? Yeah. Nah, 2014, they were long gone. The party was over but I kept on turning up and um, – so long story short, I, was, I had every intention of going to jail and knocking myself. It's funny when you make peace with something like that. It's like, this is what I'm going to do because I've just got, you know, I've got two sons and I, I just got sick of hurting them and disappointing them. And I just had enough. I was so badly beaten. You get to prison, you've got a coaxial cable part of your TV, not necessarily a TV, but you always got a coaxial cable. So that's what I was going to do. And when I got to the cell that night, Prisoners are really ingenious people. They'll, they'll make a cigarette lighter out of a coaxial cable. They'll, put some, they'll get the wire out of it and stick it in a car, into the two power points and spark and 
So they'd cut it down to make uh, a lighter out of it. So it wouldn't, the, the coaxial cable that was there wouldn't have wrapped around my little tail, let alone my neck. So I had to put it off. I had to put the process off of killing myself. I said, all right, well, I'll do it, t- I'll do it tonight when, when they get out. I'll get it, I'll get it right. And then um, so in the morning, in the jail cells in Queensland, got like a, a 30 centimetre display window where people can look in and screws can sort of see if you're all right. And this bloke come to my window who I suspected of being a sex offender previously and I'd had some run-ins with, and he offered me a shot of heroin. He said, you know, I know that you and I have never seen eye in a way, but this is like a peace deal, he said, and that was in a dirty old syringe and that wouldn't have bothered me in the past. And I looked at him and I banged the window. I said, no matter how bad I was feeling, no matter how low I ever got, I said, I could never take nothing off of you because you're a piece of shit. And I said, and if you don't get away, I'll bash you when I come out. And I was, I was in no physical shape to bash anyone. And then uh, so I got out. I walked down in the unit and, like, the unit set out and it's got some tables and a young fellow down. He's got all these books out. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm studying a bit of psychologist. And he said, I took your advice all those years ago. And he said, and I'd done something. I started, you know, I'd done tertiary preparation. I'm starting to be a psychologist. And he looked me up and down with disdain. I can remember this look. And he said, maybe you should take your own advice and then just got back to his studying. And I went, oh, oh that hurt. And then um, so I was walking back from the legal visit. Education was open. I ducked in. I said, what do you got? Like, what's available? And I said, why don't you do tertiary prep? What would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to maybe study law or something like that. And they said, well, do tertiary prep. And tertiary prep, how they program tertiary prep in Queensland is they, they pick what you want to study and they mould it to what you're going to study at uni so you get past for uni. So within a period of, say, 12 hours, something sparked in me morally. I wouldn't take something off a sex offender. Secondly, and then I'll give some kid an advice that, you know, change his trajectory. And I wasn't going to do that long. And there's a little bit, you know, there was something, a, a goal with education. And I said, you know what, if I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to be committed. I've got to be fully committed. And one of the things that come up is I, I, I'd got to that point where I knew the underlying issue of my drug use and the suicidal ideology and stuff like that was the abuse itself. And I had to do something about that. And, you know, TV, first thing I'd do. 7.30 report comes on, they're chasing George Pell. Shut up. Yeah. Wow. It's like road, road maps, like yeah. signposts yes. along the way. There Gosh. it is. And I go, wow. And I, and I like, they're going to chase him. And I was thinking, wow. The next day I jumped on, on the phone, got, some, got a phone number and I wrote to the Royal Commission. I just wrote a one-page cap paper and I thought, if I hear from them, I hear from them, you know, and if I don't, I don't. And then two weeks later they call me up for a legal visit. When you're in jail, you got a yard with 60 people in it and people know everything you're talking about and people getting sus on me. They'll think I was talking to the police or something like that. So I had to do a declaration and call the whole yard in and say, hey, look, I'm not talking to the police. I'm talking to the Royal Commission about being sexually abused as a child. After the whole, like, I just got basically a standing ovation of 60 blokes. Like, wow, they're blown away. I mean, I feel like I've just met you, but I feel like that sort of encapsulates your power. You stood in that yard and you said something that's so many people can't say. And there's a reason why what we found out in that Royal Commission is that it takes the average victim 33 years to disclose their their abuse and you're a tough man and for you to stand in that yard and say that in front of all those blokes unlocked something for all of them. It's really hard to say what you said. Oh, look, I I was sort of taken back because that sort of thing's not easy. And I sort of felt like I'd been pressured into it by the way corrective services had things set up. It wasn't, I wasn't 
because that could have went wrong for me. You yeah. know what I mean? People could have said, oh, you're being a dog, you're being an informer. And I, but I had to stand my ground and I was willing to stand my ground and fight my way out of it if I had to. But um, it was totally the opposite. How I felt about it, I was like, I was trepidation. It was like, whew, it was a big deep breath and it was like, I'm going to have to say this. Normally when you organise a yard meeting and take in mind that when you do that, the officers want to be involved too. So I had to say it in front of two officers as well, 60 inmates plus two officers. And I had to do that and there was fear. And But I'll tell you what, I tell my story a lot these days and every time I tell, tell it, it's become cathartic for me. And I realised the anxiety I had about not telling my story was way greater than the relief of actually telling my story. Now, when you get called for a legal visit in jail, you go up there, you've got anxiety because it could be the police with new charges or anything. So you're really reluctant. Yeah, who are you? What do you do? And they said, we're from the Royal Commission. I said, Royal Commission, what? And then I remembered, sat down. She goes, firstly, I want you to understand we believe you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How, how did that feel? Oh, man, it was sort of um, because previously when you report the abuse, they say, oh, go away, you little liar, you're being manipulative and that person wouldn't do this or that person wouldn't do that. So, yeah, and then I had about a 40-minute talk with her and straight into a trauma counsellor. And I was crazy. And this little English woman ended up being my trauma counsellor for four years and I never ever met her over the phone and we just went through some amazing, um, yeah, some pretty amazing stuff. It was a, a really big turning point in my life to finally have someone say, look, you know, we believe you. like, What? When, when she said that, I was like, yeah, of course you do, because I doubted it. And then she said, look, there's, there's indicators from that in- institution that back up what you're saying. I carried a, guilt, a, a backpack of stuff that didn't belong to me, and that was guilt, shame, anger, embarrassment. And when I tell my story, I hand it back to its rightful owner, and that's the perpetrator themselves. A perpetrator's greatest weapon is his victim silence and shame. I had... Two weeks ago, I was, I was getting parole and the cop was coming and charged me with six old bank robberies, right? So anyway, so I was out for like, I went to a rehab. I'd done the rehab program. I went into an outreach, which meant I, I lived in the community near the rehab, so I had my own unit. I kicked off the voice of the survivor. The voice of the survivor was going for about 12 or 18 months and I had the front court on these charges. And it was one of those days where I went to Downing Centre Court and District Court. We had the bar- we, I'd done more research and the judge we had was a whacker. He'd give big sentences out. And this day he had too much on, so he had to pass my case on another judge. And he passed my judge onto a civil liberties type judge who was compassionate and kind. And he, was, he had a jury out, so he had enough time to sentence me. And um, so he could fit me in for a few hours. In his sentencing comments, he said, you know, if this abuse never happened to you, he said, I have no doubt you've got a business acumen. You would have been a CEO of a multinational company. And he said, to sentence you to prison today would be doing a disservice to the community. He said, because once you were a public enemy, he said, now today you're a community asset. He talked about, because, you know, I had the apology letter from the government and the stuff that I'd done with the Royal Commission and my statement of facts of everything that happened to me. And he said to me, he said, you had things done to you as a child that were beyond your control. And he said, that changed the trajectory of your life. He said, on another life, you would have been... You could have been anything else other than what you become. And he said, you've been taken before the courts and you've been told how bad you were without people knowing what happened to you. And he said... Um, without people caring what yeah. happened to you. Yeah. But to have that judge sort of say to me, it was sort of, 
I don't know, it was redemption. It was like, it was, that was a real big part of the healing process. I have no doubt to be recognized by the courts. Richard Pontello and Peter O'Brien were my lawyers and barristers, and they said they were the best sentence and comments they'd ever heard in their 30 year plus practicing law. But a lot of other blokes, a lot of other people still would feel bitterness. Like your ability to not sacrifice your life to bitterness and to move on and work for others. And, you know, I think that's what's. Special yeah, because it wasn't you. serving me. I wasn't. Yeah. I had that bitterness for a long time. And, and part of trauma counseling and that sort of thing it was how well was it serving me? I remember once. My trauma counselor went in one day and she goes, I've got a plan, I've got a plan. And I said, oh, I'm always up for a plan. What's the plan? She goes, we're going to kill a pedophile today. And I went, oh, fuck, I'm there with bells on. And, she, and we'd done the stats on it. And she goes, okay, so what, where, do you know where one would be? I said, I reckon I could jump a few fences and get the one. This was while I was in prison. She goes, okay, do you reckon you get I said, yeah, I could get in the yard. And she said, what would you do? I said, oh, I'd have to stab him or cut his head off. I said, all right, well, I'm down with that. And then... She starts doing the start. She goes, so how many people in it? You know, I said 60. She goes, how many people would tell you, oh, in that one, 55, maybe 60, you know, because they were in a putrid wing. I said, is there many cameras? And, and, and she was breaking it down statistically. And she was going, so oh, you're up to about 100% chance of getting caught. She goes, now, you're going to get caught, and the courts don't like people taking, you know, the law into their own hands, and you're going to get 20 years. And now, so what's the effects of that going to happen on you? And she says, what about your kids? And how old are they? And, you know, so we've done this massive breakdown. And she goes, do you reckon it's worth, do you still want to do it? And it's like, nah. For how long does it make you feel? It make me feel good for about 20 minutes and then make me feel bad for 20 years. And post 20 years because of all of that jail trauma that you pick up along the way. So it's actually 10 years of getting over the jail trauma. So for 30 years worth of, you know, it's like having a shot of ice, you know. It feels good for 10 minutes and fucking wrecks your life, you know. And instead you're out here helping all of these men, every mm. man who rings you and says Men and the, women. We do we do men and women. Well, we, every person yeah, who yeah. says to you, you're the only person I can yeah. trust. And that's leadership. When I got out of prison, I said, I had some goals, I said, I'm going to work 12 hours a day for two years straight and see where it takes me. I know even if I would have got a job in McDonald's, I would have ended up in front with a massive tax bill. <laughs> but, and that's what I did. I got out and I just worked, right? But I also done a lot of things. I've done a lot of NA meetings. I always had time for that. I always had time for self-nurturing stuff like counselling and gym. Like health and fitness has always played a big part in my mental health. I've done that and I just laid a really good pathway. And I always wanted, I always said, I want to be able to work from the beach. Mm -hmm. I do that today. Like, you know, my phone's my office. I'm I'm normally juggling two phones and my my mate's got two phones he juggles on my behalf as well. So (laughs) I've got peace. I think that's the ultimate, you know. What about that big black hole that you're talking about? I've filled it. Obviously love has filled that. That like that's played a big part in filling up with love and and memories. Like really, I've created like I saw talk of people about getting compensation. I said use your compensation to create some memories, mm-hmm. you know, and create some good memories. They don't, you know what I mean? They don't because these people by the time they tell our stories, they've got that's pretty dark. It's pretty horrific. And you know, I remember one guy. They give him special exempts. They let him go a year early because he had liver cancer. So we timed it so he got his payout. And he, he, he died. He, he rang me two weeks before he died. He said, you know why? He said, I just want to thank you. He said, because I got to create some good memories. I went a few holidays with my kids. And so, you know, life was pretty bad. And he said, but I got to create 
some good memories with my kids. And, and I don't know what sort of price you put on that. Like I've done all the material stuff, worked my ass off, and I've been able to get the material stuff and that, that's not rewarding for me. I, that's nothing to do with my purpose these days. My purpose is to help people begin that healing journey. And that, that in itself just, I don't know if it's a karma thing or whatever, but I get rewarded pretty good for it. I've got a pretty good lifestyle live on the Gold Coast, you know, I'll get to do what I, I like to do. Go, I travel a lot from work. Like on, on the moment, we're here in Melbourne. Tomorrow we're in Hobart and then we're in Perth for a week, home for a government. And just, I go everywhere, you know, and I meet, them, meet some fascinating, interesting people, do these podcasts. and meet, I've met some interesting people through that. I've got two kids. Got an, an amazing supporting partner um, and we'll travel this year, mostly get married, do all of that sort of stuff. Is your mum still living? No, my mum passed away in March last year. Oh, so that recently? Yeah, yeah. Did mm. you still have a relationship with her? Oh, amazing. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah, she got to see things like I am. Um, that's so great. I bought a farm near Byron I bought a 15-acre farm near Byron Bay. Wow. And um, she got to see a video of that. Yeah, life's good. You know, and I've got a purpose. My purpose, you know, obviously helping survivors, but I'm really passionate about changing our prisons around. Like I'm, I'm getting involved in training staff. Prison staff. Yeah, prison staff. Mm -hmm. So my question to them is why would you want to do a job where you your intention is to go and traumatise already traumatised people? What reward's in it for that? Because I'll tell you the rewards that's in it for you. You'll go in and see your workmates that take that look. You'll have a look at their lives. You'll see their wives hate them, their kids hate them. Yep. They live a miserable existence. Mm -hmm. The dog hates them. I'll tell you an interesting thing that happened to me. I'd been talking to the Royal Commission in Queensland, I've been up there for about three about three years and went for all that trauma counselling. And I come down to New South Wales and I was in the prison and um, this squad, they turn up, they do the prison cell ramps and everything like that and they turn up with a dog and uh, there was about four of them. They put a set of handcuffs on you, handcuff you behind your back. They get your strip search and he put this thing in my hands. It was a piece of plastic, right, and it was to spread my ass cheeks. And he said, put that between your ass cheeks. I said, I put it between my ass cheeks. And I dropped it. He said, and he picked it up and tried putting it in my I said, I'm not putting it between my ass cheeks. That's sexual abuse. And he goes, what are you saying? I said, it's sexual abuse. He said, I'll break your jaw. I said, break my jaw. I said, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, and, he, and then the dog's going up its head because I've got a dog with me. And he said, sketch the dog. And I said, sketch the dog. And I said, I'm not fucking allowing you to sexually abuse me. I said, it's not happening. I'm friends with the Assistant Commissioner of Corrective Services and he's, I used to be a clerk for him at Long Bay and he made his way to Commissioner and we, we just got this amazing friendship. And I asked him, is that part of the process? He said, no, they'll rack them on their own. He said, whatever they'll do on, he said, that's not part of protocol. So when they take that view that they feel like they can do that sort of stuff and, I don't know, go rogue. Well, dominant, isn't it? It's yeah. about dominating you. And humiliating you. Yeah. yeah. They're getting power in a job because they do not have power anywhere else. Yeah, it. crazy. I, I was at Goulburn once and this officer was sitting, he was ramping my cell. So I'll give him a commentary. I said, I know you, I know what you're about. And he's, he's looking at me and going, oh, yeah, okay, Dr. Phil, <laughs> give it to me. And I said, I'll tell you what it is. I said, you go home, your wife sees you pulling the driveway, she dreads you coming in that house. Mm -hmm. You sit on a lounge, you grab the remote control, you rift your ass cheeks up, you have a big fart. You're the only one who thinks it's funny. <laughs> The dog sees you and fucking takes off and stays under the house until you go to work the next day. The kids are in the bedroom with their headphones on because they don't want to engage with you because you're so fucking miserable. Mm -hmm. mm. And I said, you know, and then you get up and do it all again the next day. And, then I said, and you're the only one who thinks it's any good. And I said, but deep down, you know, you're a shit bag. You look in the mirror and you go, Phew. 
and you turn away. I said, because you can't stand that person that you are. About three weeks later, he comes in and he goes, he's fucking, he's, he's a bit teary and he goes, fuck, you know what, you're right. Wow. Uh, and he goes, you are fucking right. And he goes, and how do you know about the dog? Uh- <laughs> I said, mate, because you're just, you're just a horrible fucking person. And he goes, yeah, I know. I said, but you can change that. That's up to you. You're right. Happy people don't treat other people like shit. No, you can't don't. disassociate. You can't do that for eight hours and go home and be normal. No. It just doesn't work that way. No way. So he said, how do I do? I said, mate, just start today and fucking walk up to a prisoner and say, hey, mate, how are you? What can I do for you? And he went, what? I said, that's simple. Start doing good things. Don't break the rules and don't stretch the boundaries. Just do what you're employed to do. Mm. Jump on, do their case notes. Oh, you've got some courses. Call you, have you got in case load? Got, he goes, I've got 25 of my case loads. I said, call them all up today. And I'm hearing these names. Johnson, come to the <laughs> office. Malcolm Smith, come to the office. And they're all coming back to me. You know, what, do you, what have you fucking said to him? I said, just be fucking nice. And I remember getting out from prison and, and he walked up and he said, oh, can I just walk out to the gas? Like some scene out of a fucking... I don't know, Shawshank Redemption or something like that, <laughs> you know what I mean? And him walking up to the gate with me, he said, mate, I might as well give you a hug. Mm. And I went, oh, he goes, you saved my marriage. He said, because they, they were about to walk out and leave me. And he said, but I'm getting out of this job. He said, this ain't for me. What amazes me often is we know that so many men came out of those places violent mm. that none of them went and killed those guys. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny thing. I remember another time, this is, I was walking my dog not long after I got out of Derek and um, I was walking my dog and this bloke came up to me and grabbed me on the genitals and, and, and said something, but I ran and I ran away. And then it was at Parramatta Jail in 1987 and you go to these reception cells to see who's new and here he is. Here he is. And I ran because I wanted to get a, a, a like a wooden squash racket so I could club him with it. I went to my cell and I had like a, like a, a paddle board, like you play squash against the wall. I ran to my cell again. I had one under my bed and I ran and I'm running back. As I'm running out, these three blokes come out of his cell and they had balaclavas on and they just bashed him and robbed him for his gold chain. So what happened is that guy that night, he because he'd been bashed and he went to court and used that as a way to get out on bail and it turns out he was in for raping his own kids. At Parramatta Jail, you can talk to people on the street. And he drove past and he stopped in his car and he yelled out to them guys and he was saying their names. He said, I'm going over to your house to rape your kids, you know. Anyway, that same guy, this is long after the Royal Commission, and um, I spoke to the Royal Commission. I spoke to the Royal Commission when I was in jail in Queensland and I come down to New South Wales on an interstate transfer and I was at MRRC jail, which is a reception jail. It's massive. It's got about 2,000 people. And I'm on the walkway and I've got two screws work, walking with me and here he is walking. And I froze. I froze. don't know why, but I, I, I hesitated and I never thought I would do that. I thought I would just attack. I would attack and I, and I hesitated and I... Fuck, it's like you have those dreams and you can't run fast enough and you're just you running from something you can't and you've got no speed. It just wasn't there. And I was like, I wanted to attack him. There was just something in me that just wouldn't allow him. I would have got jumped on by, I wouldn't have got to him firstly. That distance I would have had to cover 15 metres to get to him and them screws, I don't know, maybe no, not. But it's your, your emotional reaction yeah. was to freeze. No, that's what I was just thinking after I asked about it, after I said, why didn't they ever track down those guys and kill them? And then you started talking, I thought, oh, I suddenly realised because they're still frightening. 
Yeah, the, the necrophiliac that abused me is apparently still alive. What happens, I've, developed, I've built a life these days for myself that I wouldn't gamble with. No, but of course, but, but yeah. even on an I'd, emotional level, I'd could love you... to kill him. I'd, 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 I'd stab his eyes out in a heartbeat. Do you really think if you were ever in a room with him, I'd strangle, your I'd, emotional reaction would be to go anywhere near him? I think I could fuck with his head, like for that, whatever it was, 10 minutes or something there, to let him feel a fear that I felt. Oh. Like I'd be talking to him, I'm about to stab your eyes out and I'm going to cut your tongue off and your fingers off. And for that whatever period of time, I reckon I could make him feel the fear that I felt. I think it's... Would I get, you know, because it's that whole thing about resentments, right? Yeah. Resentments is a rust of vessel that contained in. Resentments, having a resentment with someone is like drinking a cup of poison and the other person dies for it. I know. Like, I find it kind of heartbreaking when I think about it now how infrequently victims actually commit revenge. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen through the courts either. No, no. That, you know, they're just so well protected by the judicial system. But, and why? The, in social science, there's a thing called the mink coat theory, right? The mink coat gets stolen. It creates a stimulus because you've got to employ people to police, to chase it, judges, prison officers, parole officers. A pedophile creates prostitutes, criminals, you know, and the next drug addict, the next violent offender. So it keeps the, the chains of the judicial system rolling. They know that. If you took, say, pedophiles out of the equation, I reckon your prison system would be down by 60%, especially people with propensity for violence and drug use. I think the stats that are pretty evident these Absolutely. days, they're overwhelming. I mean, another stat we have at The Voice of a Survivor, we've got 15,500 clients, right? Well, a psychiatrist will tell you that 75% of pedophiles were sexually abused as children. We haven't got one. Mm. So we dispel them stats. You know, and we told the university, we've got these stats that will dispel that. You know what I mean? How, how, more, like, how much more proof do you want? Pedophiles are that, they use it as mitigation. It happened to them. So, you know, I was just doing, you know, it's just passing on what happened to me. Yep. I mean, I have learnt from you today that I think we're all aware that sexual assault happens in prison, but it honestly never occurred to me that it was used as punishment. It, honestly, and that's going to sound so naive to you. Mm. Have you got to be, be, what sort of person, like an officer, like, I mean, I'm. Yeah, I, I can't. What sort, of, what sort of person gets employed and will, will think that's kosher? It's sadistic. It is sadistic. Yeah. You know, and they're they're compliant. If you put an inmate in a cell with, a say, an 18-year-old kid that's just got an attitude problem and he goes on and rapes him. Yeah. You're You're responsible for it. You are as responsible for that. Yeah. That's crazy. um, The work I do with the voice of a survivor, I have the most violent people in Australia ring me and they'll say, you know, and and it makes sense. There's been a few over the years and I go, oh, that bloke, mate's hectic, and then, all of a sudden I'm getting a phone call from me and he goes, mate, you're the only one I trust with this story. Yeah. They know what I've done. And, they, you know, they'll say, you're the first person I've ever told this to. And, I, you know, and, and that's always that fear. Oh, I don't want anyone else to know. I said, well, mate, you, other people are going to know. because." And, but, and I talk about telling their story beginning of the, the healing process and the healing journey and, you know, talking about that saying I've got, you know, perpetrators, greatest weapons, victim silence, shame, the backpack and the analogy and stuff like that. And they get it. They sit in uh, a room with detectives and that they're not because they don't trust detectives. They don't trust prison officers. They don't trust lawyers. That's why what the work we do at The Voice of a Survivor works. We're the conduit for these people to tell their story for the first time in a safe platform. The cure to trauma is love. 
It is. It's without a doubt. Like how you cure a traumatised person is love them back. It's like rehab, drug rehabilitation. You don't get in there fucking getting people clean by telling them what shit bags you are, no. and you, sh- you know, and that's that self-worth stuff. Oh, what sure. survivors uh, ha- uh, lack the, uh, in this, like when they, most of their life is self-worth, what's happened to me is my self-worth, a few seeds and it grew mm-hmm. and my self-worth gradually and gradually come back and today I don't doubt it. You know, today I don't doubt myself, well, I'm, I'm a worthy person, I'm worthy of love and I'm a good person, I'm not this bad person that I've been portrayed in the past. And when you know my story, you understand that. I don't use my abuse as a justification for robbing banks and anything like that. I have genuine remorse and I, I, I genuinely regret that. And I didn't understand trauma, what I'd done to other people, until I understood my own trauma, you know. I didn't understand, like, oh, how do you feel about them? I don't know how to feel about them. No. Because I had a whole heap of shit things done to me too, so they mm. should just be kicking along like, like I do. And, like, how do, you, how do you respect society? How do you respect strangers like the security guard at the bank when you've been 16 and stood in a courtroom and had a judge and adult say, you know what, I'm going to send you to be raped for a couple of years mm. in yeah. Long Bay. And then when you get there, the adult guards there specifically put you in rooms for that to happen. How do we expect you to then have respect for the rest of us? Yeah. You know, when your childhood has been um, blighted that way. I've got a mate of mine, Professor Ian Coyle, he does trauma reports, and his stats on me were a million to one. Mm-hmm. He said, you're a million, he said, you know, looking back on where you come, you come from now, Drew, say up against that low socioeconomic mm-hmm. area, you've done 23 years, you're sexually abused, you're a $1,500 a day heroin addict. And he said, you're a million to one shot. Thank you to our guest, Russell Manser. If this show has raised any issues for you that you'd like to talk to someone about, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or you can visit their website, lifeline.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Australian True Crime is recorded at the Hub Australia. Every Hub Australia co-working space has a fully equipped media studio so you can make a podcast all of your own. Visit hubaustralia.com for more details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.